we asked for your questions about philosophy and you submitted them. And answering your questions on objectivist philosophy is something that we're making a regular feature of this podcast. And today is our third installment of this series. Welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. My name is Agustina Vergara-Cid and I'm a research associate at the Ayn Rand Institute. And joining me are Aaron Smith, fellow and instructor at ARI and Mike Massa, junior fellow and instructor at ARI. Welcome, Aaron and Mike. Thanks, hi. So uh, we're gonna, I'm going to be asking you a few questions today, ranging from a variety of topics. So let's jump right into it. The first question comes from a listener of this podcast, and he asks, does objectivism discourage engaging in fantasy art? And the context in which he asked this question is that he says that an invalid concept cannot be reduced down to sense perception. One example of this would be the word, quote, ghost, which can be imagined, but only be a borrowed attribute, such as consciousness, from valid concepts, such as man. The same is true for all fantastic concepts, wizard, goblin, fairy, angel, and god. So does objectivism discourage engaging in fantasy art? Well, I would say, I mean, the short answer is no, not as such. Um, but if you want to look at what Ayn Rand has to say about fantasy, particularly in literature, um, I would take a look at uh, the art of fiction. So this is an edited uh, set of lectures that Ayn Rand gave, I guess, in her living room on uh, fiction writing. Um, this is what the book looks like, The Art of Fiction. Um, and in that, she has a section on fantasy. And she says, uh, so I'll read just a few little snippets from this. You get a sense of her view. Um, she says, several different forms of literature can be classified as fantasy. And she gives some things like stories laid in the future, like 1984 or even Atlas Shrugged, um, science fiction, magic stories, ghost and horror stories, stories about heaven and hell, uh, even fairy tales. And what she has to say is she says, all of these forms are rational when they serve some abstract purpose applicable to reality. She says the same principle applies to fairy tales. Stories like the magic carpet and Cinderella are justified even though the events are metaphysically impossible because those events are used to project some idea which is rationally applicable to human beings. Um, so the, something about the meaning of the story has to have elements that are uh, applicable to human life rather than simply, she gives the example of a, a kind of movie where they're like, human-sized ants and they invade the the planet and wipe everybody out <laughs> and there's not really a point to to it it's simply fantasy for the sake of fantasy um so that's i don't think the element i don't think the if there were an issue with some kind of fantasy art that objectivism would object to in some form i don't think it's as the questioner asks it, that it's epistemological in other words that it uses concepts that aren't uh that don't have reference in reality like there aren't any goblins and so on Yeah, you know, on, on that point, I think it's worth thinking about the some of the specific concepts the questioner mentions of ghost, wizard, god. Um, those are invalid if you take them to be attempts to refer to something, you know, some hypothetical being. But if you're using them as conceptualizations of fictional devices, they're perfectly valid. Ghosts are something people 
write about, talk about, and you can, you know, look at different entities and di across different stories and see that these fictional beings have similar properties of other, the other ghosts or, and God is a lowercase g is a concept uh, we can use to apply to hypothesized entities in different religions. So it, it whether or not these concepts are valid really is going to depend on what you take them to be doing. Um, and if you're writing a fantasy fiction and you want to write about a ghost, I mean, hopefully you recognize it's not a real thing. It's just some uh, device to convey your exciting story. Yeah, and just so, so part of the, so the objectivist possession, like Ayn Rand's perspective on it is that fantasy can be a perfectly valid form of art uh, so long as it's, uh, it has an abstract meaning uh, that is in some way applicable to human life, to human affairs, so that it's not so simply cut off completely. And I think one of the, the so Aaron unplugged here, I'll just say something that I, um, I read a lot, <laughs> uh, hopefully not unhinged, just unplugged. Um, I read a lot of fantasy novels, you know, like sword and magic stuff uh, growing up. Uh, I still actually like that genre. So it's not, so I, one of the things I wanted to key in on was the question, does objectivism discourage engaging in or with fantasy art? It's not about discouraging. And I don't, I think there are some people who will think of objectivism discourages me from liking a certain kind of art. And I don't think that's true. I don't think that's right. Um, I mean, there might be some cases, uh, but um, I don't think you should censor your views about what you like to read or watch or engage in because you think there's some sort of objectivist prohibition. Uh, she ha she ha she's a philosopher and, she and she's an artist. And uh, so she has a perspective on what she thinks is valid art and what she thinks is not valid art and what's problematic about certain kind of artworks or aesthetically bad. And some elements she thinks it can involve a fantasy element where the introduction of that element is problematic in certain kind of ways, um, but it, it, you, there's no blanket view about the, you know fantasy art is out if it's got wizards or orcs. Forget it. Uh, it, it I mean, it's. I think it's worth noting. I'm not a uh, sword and magic uh, genre, but I did like the Avengers movies. Uh, I thought they had some interesting themes, positive themes. In fact, some of the only uh, fiction we have nowadays with actual heroes are superhero movies or comic books, and they are fantasy, science fiction. But notice, also, fantasy, so. but notice also that what, um, well, I don't know how you respond to this, but when I watch those kind of movies, I just get bored because you they can just do anything. Dude, like, or even just like well, Lord of the Rings or something. Legolas jumps off some creature and he falls like 500 feet and lands on the ground and just kills everybody. Just, it, it's like, you can't, it doesn't seem, I just sort of wait for the sequence to end because I don't, uh -huh. <laughs> not human. And well, sort of like, they have to be paired, they have to be paired with somebody equally powerful as a foe. Otherwise, it, yeah, I, I see the boredom. <laughs> yeah. But, but the, uh, I, to your yeah. point about but, discouraging or in, uh, encouraging this genre of art, I mean, you can't, um, like you said, censor your own artistic preferences because you have some kind of presupposition about what objectivism tells you you should and shouldn't like. You respond how you respond, and then you have to introspect about why and go from there.
So Rand said that, I think this was on uh, Ayn Rand Answers, the book, uh, that she said that art is a recreation of reality according to one's values. And that art is about recreating what could be and not to be. Um, and that the purpose of art is the objectification, I think she says, of uh, all of, of one's values. But so what, how do we classify the type of artworks? For example, like she meant, you mentioned earlier, Aaron, that uh, like movies about giant ants and all that kind of stuff. And for instance, a piece of uh, an artwork that this, does not really recreate any values, but that one takes enjoyment in looking at because it has uh, pretty colors or somehow uh, elicits a response that is I enjoy looking at this or the movie. I actually like enjoy the movie. It's an internal. What is that art or is that something else according to Rand? Well, there are two different elements there. One, what now there are two components to your question. Um, you know, I'll take the second first and I'll try to remember what the first one was. So the second one was, if you like a piece of art that let's just say it has nice colors, um, I'm probably mispronouncing his name, but you know, Rothko, I'm probably mispronouncing that, but uh, they're just sort of these kind of washes of colors sort of combined a bit. I think those things are really cool. Um, it, I would Ayn Rand think of those as art. Um, I don't think so, unless you subcategorize it as decorative art in the sense that it adds a sort of splash of color to a room and it can have art uh, that element of, that it's aesthetic or decorative or artistic or something but i don't think she would classify that as art but i mean there's nothing off about liking that kind of thing um, um or even something like a mondrian i don't think she would consider that as art on the other unless you classify it as decorative art and I don't think she means that as a slur against it, um, because it does bring some element like color and form, uh, which one can respond to in a positive way. Um, what was the first part of the question? Um, the, like she was oh, that's mentioning- Oh, right, the recreation uh, of reality. Yes, exactly. Yeah, um, so when it comes to fantasy um, art, um, you are recreating reality, but you're recreating elements of it. So it's not like you're re recreating the world as it is. Uh, there are no orcs, uh, but there are um, uh, heroic actions. There are friendships. There are struggles and risks taken and danger in life. And so often they, they involve some sort of quest, you know, um, where a group of people go off to do something quite dangerous and they take risks and their friendships are strained or whatever, there's love involved, romance, all of those are elements in reality that get um, presented in a more fantastic form. Um, so there is an element of recreation of reality, though it's not like, uh, it's not depicting our world, so to speak. Even with a movie that has giant ants or one of those kind of, uh, <laughs> one of we those kind of- the show notes. Fan yeah, fantastic um, disaster movies. Those, those, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't put them alongside um, the Jackson Pollock or the this the smear because there is a, a sort of theme in them, which something like the feebleness of man or something. The giant ants come and we're helpless and uh, they destroy us. 
War, War of the Worlds, if I recall, is like that. We are saved, but not by any human um, you know, ingenuity, but just by, uh, I think it's the, the common aliens cold. get a bacteria or a common cold, yeah. So um, there is some kind of theme, like the helplessness of human, um, human beings in the face of nature or in the face of a superior power. It's some of those stories probably have colonialist metaphors baked in there that maybe uh, I don't, I can't pick up on, but I, it sounds like it. So. Yeah. So if and to the extent there are elements there that are applicable to our life, to human life, to our, I don't know, conduct or perspective, that's one thing. It just shouldn't be arbitrary is the idea. Oh, um, we got a super chat from Jonathan. How do you explain epistemology to a first timer? Episteme is just an ancient Greek word for knowledge. So epistemology is the, what we call the theory of knowledge in philosophy. It studies the nature and means of human knowledge. What is knowledge and how do you, what, by what means do you acquire it? Um, so when we talk about an epistemological question, <clears throat> it's a question relating to the nature of knowledge. Uh, so that was just a clarification. Thanks, Jonathan. Okay, so let's move on to our second question of the day, which is about free will. So the question is, how important is free will to the entire objectivist philosophy? And the context that the questioner gives is that with reference to the objectivist view of free will, there is currently very little that is understood scientifically, scientifically sorry, about the nature of consciousness and, quote, where volition is in the brain. And if we find more answers about consciousness and volition in the future, how could this impact the reasoning behind uh, objectivism's conclusions? Well, let's start with the question more directly about objectivism. Um, suppose we somehow uh, decide that there's no such thing as free will, it's an illusion. What would that do to objectivism? Well, if there's no free will, then objectivism is false. Uh, objectivism makes claims about what we should do, about how we should make choices in life, how we should direct the, uh, the direct our thoughts, how, what kind of questions we should choose to ask in thinking about things. Almost the entire philosophy is uh, action guiding and presupposes that we have choice over the actions we take. So if we don't have choice, if it's just an illusion, um, we're out of luck. Uh, now, as to scientific questions, um, what can the scientific study of consciousness and volition tell us about philosophy? I think it's pretty, pretty limited what it would tell us um, as far as uh, things of philosophical significance. It would certainly tell us a lot that would be significant for psychology and um, and related fields. But as far as philosophy goes, I think we could imagine we find that maybe we have slightly less control over something we think we have a lot of control over or slightly more control over something we don't think we have much control. Those kind of at the edges of what we have volitional power over maybe, um, but I don't think any kind of core philosophically relevant um, insight into, into free will will come from uh, scientific research. Aaron, did you 
Yeah, um, <clears throat> I would I'd put it just slightly different. Uh, I, we, agree, I, we agree on this issue, but <clears throat> I want to formulate just slightly differently. Um, so uh, you said if, if there's, if we suddenly somehow theoretically or like hypothetically discover that we have free will, objectivism is false. Um, have, I would say no that objectivism, yeah, I have no free will, sorry. Uh, yeah. Objectivism is false. I'd say that if there's no free will, objectivism is neither true nor false. Um, but I, I, but your point, I think was, and I think this is right, is that free will is essential to objectivism. So if you pull out that element of objectivism, the whole thing would collapse. I mean, it's, it's all action guiding. It's all about how do I use my mind to reach truth where I have a choice? Uh, and how do I guide my life and the choices and actions and what, what should I value? How should I conduct myself? And those are all, all the should questions are all questions where we face an actual alternative. If there are no such genuine alternatives, um, then you don't need a philosophy. Uh, and, but it's, I don't think, and, uh, and so I said that if there's no free will, objectivism is neither true nor false. And if you look at it this way is, suppose someone says, I've, I've demonstrated scientifically that we don't have free will. Um, and that we're all determined by factors, antecedent causes, and so on that are outside of our control. Then what the person is saying is, I have no control over my conclusions. I have no control over any of my thought processes, including the ones I use to reach, allegedly, the proof that there's no free will. And that the person who's an advocate of free will, who thinks really we do have free will, similarly has no choices whatsoever about what views they form, what arguments they find plausible or convincing. They have no control over their thought processes or whether they're logical or illogical, objective or non-objective or arbitrary. They simply will believe and have to believe whatever they do. Like that would be, that's the way to think about free will and determinism as if you're being consistent with it. So it's objectivists have to utter words like, I think there's free will. And Sam Harris has to utter things like, it's an illusion. And Neither, they're both from an epistemological perspective, from a, from, from a perspective of like what counts as knowledge, they're on an equal footing. It's like if one apple falls from a tree and another apple doesn't fall from the tree, which one's right? Well, there is no right or wrong. It's just, that's the way reality is. It's just one went one way mm -hmm. and because it had to and another one stayed on the vine or sorry, branch because it had to, that's it. There's no right or wrong, true or false. Um, legitimate or illegitimate, it's that's it. So if you take object, if you take determinism seriously, um, you can't make any kind of evaluations between different kinds of claims. They're all on a level. And this is a this is a problem for any philosophy that seeks to offer guidance or make some kind of claim about how we should or shouldn't act. It's not unique to objectivism that that issue. Um, and it's it's interesting as. Uh, philosophers have become more and more skeptical of free will. They're less and less interested in normative philosophy. And the ones that are kind of twist themselves into knots to try to explain how we can be determined, but also still give guidance. And it, Aaron, you've written about this in the context of stoicism. Ultimately, it just doesn't work um, for the reasons you just explained. 
Yeah, because I think uh, there was a poll done, and I can't remember whether this came out from the lighter report. This has to do with the, well, I forget. I should no, say was, who did the poll. Phil Papers, yeah, yeah. Was it Phil Papers? Yeah, you're Phil right. Pa Phil Papers, yeah. Yeah, and I don't remember the numbers exactly, but they asked uh, a, a, a range of philosophy professors um, where they stood on the issue of free will. Like, are they libertarians? And this is, in the context of free will, that means someone who thinks that we have free will. It's not a political issue. Um, or if they're a determinist, like a hard determinist, absolutely no such thing as free will, no such thing. Uh, or if they were a compatibilist, also known as a soft determinist. In other words, these are determinists who define freedom or free, uh, free will or whatever um, in deterministic terms. So, it's so, you, so you can find a way to define freedom so it's compatible with determinism. Uh, I mean, they define it out of existence from the objectivist perspective. Um, but I think the, the overwhelming majority are either determinists or compatibilists. In other words, they're determinists or they're determinists. Um, and of, no, it was something like 20%, 18%, I can't remember I, what yeah, it was. I remember it was under 20% uh, were libertarians about free will. And that, that number was, if I recall, highly co um, correlated with the philosopher being religious as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that tells you something and about that's the state of, of yeah. thought on this. Yeah. Yeah, and that's part of the problem that people have is they think that, look, if you're going to be scientific, like we're not mystics here, we're not going back to the Middle Ages where you think that there's a, a soul that's infused in you by God and then it, it has special powers, you know, that uh, the body doesn't have or something. And we don't want to go back to that sort of mystical view. Um, we want to be scientific that often what they'll do is that means determinism. I mean, we, we, we live in a deterministic worldview, uh, they say. Uh, sorry, they, they, we live in a deterministic world, and that's the view of science. And if you're going to be scientific, you need to drop free will because free will is somehow non-causal or it's magical. It just happens, um, and that's certainly not the objective view. So, two follow-ups to that. Um, the first one, given all that you guys just said, would it do you think it would be impossible to prove scientifically that? free will does not exist. Yes. Would it, would it be impossible for scientists to prove that there's no free will? Yeah, I would say no. It's so science depends on free will, not the other way around. So um, for something to demonstrate that their conclusion uh, follows from their premises and that they've, been, they've reached an objective conclusion about the nature of reality, they're telling you about, I've used my mind in a certain way, the correct way the correct way required to reach a conclusion that's conclusive on this issue. Not, I came up with a conclusion, I had no control over any of the thought processes that were involved in it, any of the choices I made anywhere along the way, zero control over any of that, but I know mine's right. Like that's incoherent. I mean, from the, yeah, from the objective. This, this issue I think is more, so I think, most of us are most familiar with the problems uh, that determinism um, brings to ethics, but there are parallel problems in epistemology. So if you, like Aaron was saying, if you're maintaining that your determinist conclusion is correct or proven, that means you followed certain steps that you didn't have to. You volitionally chose to follow the right epistemic steps that led to this 
conclusion and objectivism's view is this is a contradictory position uh, to hold. There's an article called The Contradiction of Determinism. Is that the right title from yeah. the objectivist newsletter from you know back yeah. in the 60s um, that makes this, yes, that, that makes this ar uh, argument. And it's not completely a unique argument to objectivism, but I think objectivism has the most developed version of it. Um, so it's, it's worth checking out too. Yeah. And then my second follow-up is, what if, it, if it's proven that certain aspects of ourselves um, we have no control over? And I'm thinking, um, I am not uh, aware of what's the latest on this, but for instance, sexual orientation is something that is believed, I think, to not be a choice that one consciously makes. It's not that you choose that, uh, you choose a particular sexual orientation, it's just that you are, it's hardwiring you or something like that. And I don't, I don't wanna be uh, non-specific about my words, but what if, could it be that we have free will? So if someone has a certain sexual orientation, they not change that. Um, or they have no control over that. So what if we discover scientifically that there are many other aspects of our personalities that we, can, we do not have any control over, we just have control over what we do with them? Well, from my perspective, uh, go, go ahead, Mike. Well, I, I think there's, so there's two issues. If you, if you put the question, what should we do about them? So one is, if something is really hardwired into you, um, and you have no control over it, then that's not open to evaluation, um, it, moral evaluation, I mean. Now, it might be open to some other kind of evaluation where you could say it's good or bad for you. Like if you're born with some kind of congenital disease or a disability, that, that's bad for you, not in a moral sense, but in the sense that your uh, ability to live is somehow impaired. So if we find that about some, say, personality traits, that they're hardwired into us from birth. And let's say they're personality traits that make life more difficult. You wouldn't say that person is bad for having those traits. You might say they're bad for not using some medical in intervention that's available to them and makes their life better. That might be uh, a moral issue, but you wouldn't say just having this condition um, is, is a morally, uh, you know, bad state of affairs. Yeah, and you, you were, Mike, you were talking about uh, sort of medical conditions, things that you might uh, be uh, subject to, your body might be subject to an effect that you don't have any control over. Um, that's certainly true with medical related things. Uh, but when we talk about um, the issue of, like you said, you asked about sexual preference, um, like I, like that's a different kind of case. Um, and I so I think this is not a philosophic question about whether uh, or to what extent sexual preference is uh, you're just born with it. It's built. It's a built-in feature of your nature, or whether this there's some choice involved, uh, or whether it's some kind of a mixture of the two. Uh, I don't really know. I don't have a really have a view about that. Um, but the abstract point is that. Uh, there may be elements of our nature, and there certainly are, 
that are not up to our control. They're not under our control. I mean, that's, I mean, I think we should all think that's fairly obvious about, but the question is, okay, so which ones, which things are under our control and which aren't, um, and that you have to figure out, I mean, in some cases for yourself, in some cases, when you have a view about human nature, what, what things can we control and what not, like, um, I mean, from a, the objectivist perspective, you do have control over your moral character because you have control over the kinds of things that you value and the choices that you make over life. Um, does that mean that you have control or full control over your temperament? I don't think a philosophy can tell you, uh, oh yeah, you do, <laughs> no, you don't. You have to figure out, well, what are the features of my temperament? Like I'm more, uh, let's say you're more prone to depression than someone else. And it's not because you have bad values necessarily. It's maybe just you, there's some kind of chemical issue or who knows what. Um, I don't think one can sit in one's philosopher chair and tell people you know, these are the things that you, know, you can and can't, uh, except to the extent where it is a philosophic issue. Um, so objectivism's perspective on free will is it's introspectively self-evident. Like the, how, you do, how do you know you have free will? You don't read a, a philosophy textbook or read Ayn Rand. That helps you better conceptualize the phenomenon of choice. But how do you know you have free will? Introspection. You know, when you observe the actions of your own mind, you realize that you possess a certain kind of ability to control or direct a thought process. And as a result, actions. That's it. That's, that's the observational evidence. And then, of course, you can go more widely. And I can see that other people can infer that other people are acting in similar ways and they're making choices. And um, yeah. Yeah, on, on that point, Aaron, the, the question asks about scientific study of consciousness. And I think it's important to bring up that part of taking a scientific approach to anything is to take into account all of the data, all of the evidence. And when you're studying human consciousness and free will, part of the data is introspection. So if you're looking at studies that have no interest in introspection, no interest in the introspective reports of the subjects uh, of the studies or of the researchers or of anybody, that's not scientific. It's neglecting um, an important source of information about the phenomenon being studied. Um, the primary source, even. The primary source, yeah, the primary source <laughs> of the information being studied. Um, so, I mean, I know that, you know, if there's a, a data gathering and statistical analysis, and that's what good research looks like. And I mean, well, research that's not scientific can have those features too. And I think from what I gather, a lot of research into free will does not meet the bar of being scientific in the sense of taking into account all of the data. Right. And which is also not to say that um, this isn't a fascinating area of study is the, sure. like the study of the, of the brain or the neurological system and so on. It's like, what are the physical uh, requirements um, be, for um, a human being to have the capacity to be self-directing? Like if certain areas are damaged and the person can't direct their actions or thinking anymore, it's like, yeah, that, that's an interesting area of study, but it's not going to show someday that, you know, we don't have free will. Okay, uh, let's move on to our third question of the day. Um, 
So the questioner, this is the context in which the question comes. Uh, the questioner says that a British Labour member of parliament earlier this week uh, described Ayn Rand in the House of Commons as an, quote, extreme right-wing libertarian, close quote. How would you respond to this description of Ayn Rand? And how are libertarianism and objectivism different? So two questions there. Yeah, well, I don't think it's a good description. Uh, I don't think it's an accurate description. Um, but there are a number of elements to it. Uh, the what was it? Extreme right wing libertarian. Extreme right wing libertarian. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's say it again. Uh, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so Ayn Rand would have rejected, I think, both of those labels. Well, all the the, the last two, she would have rejected the idea that she's right wing. I mean, that that concept uh, is. First of all, it's too rubbery to have a clear meaning. Uh, and Ayn Rand regularly said that she is not a conservative. Uh, and I think she did use the term rightist, I think, in some of her uh, writings about um, political categories and so on. Uh, but she wouldn't think of herself as right wing. because So she has a unique philosophy um, and a unique, it's not entirely unique political philosophy, but she has a unique moral base for her political philosophy. Um, which everyone rejects today. Uh, so she just doesn't fit these kind of categories. She certainly rejected the term libertarian. Um, partly, I mean, partly. Was, uh, she, she was angry at libertarians at the time, you know, that she was writing on this in uh, the 60s, I suppose 70s, um, is that she regarded them as a non-philosophical, even anti-philosophical group that included things that she regarded were beyond discussion, things like anarchy. Like anarchy, anarchism is, is such a silly view and such a dangerous view that it's, it's the opposite of anything Ayn Rand would hold. Uh, so I don't think it's, it, I think in general, that if you try to apply conventional categories that we use to um, box people in or label them, conceptualize them, uh, I don't think they generally fit Rand at all. Uh, so if you just look from an economic perspective, if there, are, so for those libertarians who are uh, unapologetic advocates of a free market, like laissez-faire capitalism, you could say they have a commonality in those individuals would have a commonality with Ayn Rand in terms of being free market, free marketeers, if you want to call it that. Um, but libertarianism is not a philosophy. Uh, and Ayn Rand's is. And there's vast differences between the two in terms of morality. And just think about the whole big tent idea. I mean, if you call somebody a libertarian, I don't exactly know what your views are. You Maybe you're a minarchist, maybe you're an anarchist, uh, maybe you're a classical liberal, um, maybe you're religious, maybe you're an atheist, it's, it, maybe you're anti-abortion, maybe you're pro-abortion. It's just such a hodgepodge that get included in that tent that you can't really think of objectivism who has a worked out view about the nature of morality, of knowledge, the nature of the world we live in, of the moral justification for freedom of the political structures that are required for the protection of individual rights. They're, I think, in a different, frankly, universe. Yeah, on, on the topic of these terms as terms, I think it's important to think about what they're trying 
to classify. So right wing and libertarian. Um, libertarian sometimes uh, is meant to be a classification of political philosophies. Sometimes it's more like uh, conservative or liberal. It's kind of quasi sociological. Like they're this group of people with similar concerns that read similar authors and go to conferences together. Um, so on the sociological side, I think it's not true that Rand's a libertarian. Um, she's not, it's, libertarians often read Rand and have respect for her, but it was not a, a mutual, uh, it didn't go the other direction. Now, if these are terms that are supposed to classify political philosophies, I think it's important to realize that these are not neutral classifications. So if you think about like right wing, um, and if you talk to uh, someone who's really radically left, uh, leftist, let's say a Marxist, um, who's right wing? So, well, fascists and capitalists and Ayn Rand and, you know, they're all right wing. And you ask them why, what do they have in common that makes them right wing? And they'll tell you something. They'll have their own, you know, informed by Marxist view about why the similarities they're uh, pointing to are the right, this, the important ones. And of course, we have a response. You said, no, Rand has less in common with fascists than, uh, I mean, you know, Marxists have more in common with fascists than objectivists have in common with either fascists or Marxists. And we say things about why that's the case, about, you know, collectivism and authoritarianism, like all the familiar things. So this is not a neutral classification. What counts as right or left is going to, if you want to speak that way, is going to be um, informed by, uh, you know, some of the philosophy that's at issue between, say, an objectivist and a Marxist or an objectivist and a fascist. And then even amongst people who um, get grouped with us like libertarians, I think there's, e even there, these classifications are not neutral. So if you think of classifying Rand as having the same political philosophy or a similar political philosophy to the anarchist Murray Rothbard, if you think, why would you think they have this, a similar political philosophy? Well, maybe you're classifying political you know, views of government based on like how much government they think they sh there should be. And Rothbard says zero and Rand says a limited government. So that sounds like not a lot. So they're together on one side. And then on the other side is like Stalin and, you know, fascism and, and, and in between is Barack Obama or something. Um, but that it, uh, our view is that's not the, the objectivist view is that's not the right way to think about the similarities between different political philosophies. It's more something like um, the degree to which the state structure puts uh, force under objective control. Okay, so if you think about political similarities based on that, well, Rand's view is that objectivism is over here and maybe Thomas Jefferson's here and then in the middle is maybe Elizabeth Warren and then on the other side are both Stalin and Murray Rothbard right now if that strikes you as um, highly objectionable or like you don't understand why that is that's because there's a substantive philosophical disagreement here that you have to hash out and think about which is uh, which is right so um, that's that's why I don't think objectivism or, or the objectivist political philosophy is a form of libertarianism because I don't think there's a 
common political philosophy between Rand and Hayek or Rand and Rothbard or So part of this characterization from uh, these women uh, member of parliament was an, an extreme uh, libertarian, right? When libertarian. So, um, and the, the, the word extremism is something that Rand has uh, talked, written, talked about quite extensively. Um, could you guys talk a little bit about that and what it, what, how extremism is a package deal according to Ayn Rand and what she thought about that? Yeah, so she wrote an article or an essay called Extremism or the Art of Smearing. Uh, and that that's a, well, I shouldn't evaluate it. I guess I will anyway. That's a brilliant essay. Uh, <laughs> um, from an epistemological perspective, it has to do with the, the use of certain kinds of concepts uh, and the use and misuse of certain kinds of concepts and how some can really distort your thinking. Uh, and extremism is one she picks um, because ex extremism is used as a smear. To say someone is an extremist, is that a good thing? Well, no, the way the term is used, it's a bad thing. But you could be extremely good. You could be extremely honest. You could be extremely productive. You could be extremely moral. So extreme just has, it's an issue of degree. But if for, to evaluate something as extremely good or extremely bad or extremely dangerous or extremely helpful, you have to ask, well, what is the, what is the feature that the fact exhibits to some extreme degree? Um, you could be extremely capitalist. <laughs> well, that, but that just depends on what do you think of capitalism? Maybe that's a great thing. Uh, maybe it's a horrible thing if you're a Marxist or something, right? So uh, extremist or extreme is often used simply as a smear. And I, one of the things Rand says about it is one of the major problems with that is any fully consistent advocacy, principled advocacy of some view is dismissed as extreme. From 100% for individual rights, they are inalienable, capital I. Like it's not, well, they're inalienable unless someone needs it. Someone needs your money. Or they're inalienable unless the majority votes it away. No, I mean they're inalienable. It's, wow, that's extremist. Why go to extremes? And so it's, it's an issue that it, it paints any consistent principled position, uh, no matter what it's view, whether it's, you should think of it as good or bad, uh, as, as wrong. And that just sort of blasts principles out of the picture and says the whole, the whole way we should approach is pra pragmatism and compromise. Middle of the road in some form. And one of the things that's coming out of that essay is um, the, the specific examples she's giving of alleged extremists. I mean, she's getting them from, if I recall, it was the Rockefeller campaign against Goldwater um, that's where this word was getting a lot of views. Goldwater is an extremist. Who are other extremists? Well, the John Birch Society and Ku Klux Klan and the Communist Party, they're all extremists. And the kind of like, if you think about what do they all have in common to the people using the term, it's something like outside of respectable mainstream discourse or something like that. They're, they're you know, extremely outside of um, mainstream uh, Rockefeller Republicanism. And, you know, that's not a 
the fact that somebody has a view far outside a mainstream of the 1960s Republican Party does not tell you whether or not that view is true or false or good or evil or anything. It just tells you it's outside of the Republican view. And they try to, you know, the, the packaging is the wrapping up the negative evaluation with the, um, with the, with the falling outside. So. Yeah, and it was like Ayn Rand called herself a radical for capitalism, you know, and that's a way of saying, no, I accept fully the, the label, but I don't accept the evaluation. Yeah. So I've seen that used to, um, in the context, for instance, when I talk to someone about um, altruism, someone that thinks altruism is good, and I say, well, if you practice altruism to its full extent, these are the consequences. You end up being a Mother Teresa and suffering, and these are all the implications that holding this philosophy, this philosophy consistently would, would, uh, would have. And often the reaction is, well, you don't have to take it to the extreme. So I guess part of what the, the way extremism, extra, ex, sorry, extremism means is practicing something uh, Consistently, and but like Mike, uh, Mike said, doesn't tell you anything about what that thing is. Yeah, that's probably I, I would I I suspect that this like urge to not be consistent to kind of take a little from column A, column B. You got to be altruistic, but not too much. Um, I suspect that's a consequence of realizing that. Well, if you followed altruism consistently, that would not work out too well for anybody. Um, and false moral principles are all like that. If you follow them consistently, they'll destroy you um, and the people around you. Uh, so you have to, in order to you know, have a life, you have to compromise on them. Um, so then it seems like, yeah, being extreme or being consistent on moral principles is you know, it's crazy. You could take take it too far, and then you wind up, um, you wind up like a schmoo trying to be eaten by other people. So, <laughs> yeah, this is the whole you know problem of moral saints. The idea is if you hold as virtuous um, self sacrifice, then you ask, then you can ask someone, well, why don't don't you want to be fully virtuous? And like, well, no. <laughs> Because self-sacrifice is anti-life. It sets up a moral, it sets up your moral ideal uh, is against life. Because what life requires is gaining values, using them, enjoying them, uh, not losing them, not giving them up, not surrendering them. Um, but if you're told that it's good to do it, well, then any person who wants to continue living will cheat on it and say, well, I mean, I'll sacrifice sometimes, but, you know, not all the time. But what you need is a principle that you don't need to cheat on. You need one that's a moral principle that's actually consistent with the requirements of human life and happiness. Uh, then there's no reason to cheat on it. I mean, there might be temptations, but you have to think about, like, you have to put those into perspective in terms of uh, how those relate to your actual, uh, the actual values that you need. Uh, yeah, and this question is about pop. We got a, we oh, you know, go ahead. You want to finish off? Oh, I was to, just, uh, yeah, I was just going to say this question is about politics. So you can think of the political version of that is, you know, we know if the government runs everything, that's a disaster. Everybody's learned about the Soviet Union. So, so we can't be extreme. The government has to run something. We don't want to be extreme in the other direction because we've heard that 
laissez-faire capitalism, that's a disaster too. So we need we need some middle ground, and you know part of that mistake is based on uh, ignorance about the history of capitalism. But the, I think it's the same kind of uh, instinct people have, or the same kind of um, place they wind up in that they they see that okay the consistent view, the consistent uh, action on this principle leads somewhere bad. So we need to pull back in order to have a functioning economies. Okay, let's move on uh, to the next question. Uh, and this question comes from Thomas in Super Chat with a very generous donation. Um, and the question is, how does one keep oneself from giving up the fight due to the current intellectual, intellectual and cultural bankruptcy and socialist and authoritarian trends in American society? Uh, well, one thing that I would say, I think it's worth always remembering, even when the state of the culture is getting so bad, it feels like, what's the point of fighting? There's no way to win. Is that one of the things about it being, one of the things, that, the meaning of it being intellectually bankrupt is they have no valid or rational ideals in the culture, the cultural norms, um, there's nothing to, there's nothing rational really to aspire to, I think. And I think it's worth saying that objectivism offers something worth aspiring to. It offers something that is, that is rational, that is practicable. Um, and the only thing, I mean, if, if one really cares about uh, those things, about uh, things about the uh, about about reason, about freedom, about individualism, about capitalism. I mean, these are, I think, noble ideals, and people are not given or offered these kinds of things uh, from the major cultural voices. And yet, objectivism has something really empowering and valuable to say on them. Uh, so I don't underestimate the power of rational ideas. And uh, I mean, I look, so the, the Institute, the Ayn Rand Institute has a, has a mission, a specific mission, uh, and which is to um, move the culture more in the direction of objectivist ideas, you know, and to convince people of these, uh, that to value things like reason and individualism and capitalism and to change the culture. But on a day-to-day -day basis, for example, I don't think I'm trying to change the culture. I mean, that's a broad, long range, abstract goal. I mean, you can think of yourself as broadly playing a role in that, uh, that process. Um, but part of it is I'm trying to communicate rational ideas to other people to help them, help empower them to know what to value and how to fight for. Uh, and in the doing of that, which I do daily, just because of my profession, um, I find a real value in that and a real meaning and it doesn't feel like a hopeless thing, even though sometimes you can look at the news and you're like, we're, we're going downhill uh, fast, which we are. Aaron, you've been doing this a lot longer than I have. So you speak more from experience than I do. I guess I can, I can say like uh, amongst the issues that most interest me, like I'm interested in, uh, philosophy of science and you know de defending the sciences from various attacks and what I haven't been doing that long enough to 
have the question before myself, how do I keep going in, in the face of all this, you know, all these bad trends, but I think the way I would approach that, I mean, I, I always, what I find interesting about the sciences is all the, you know, the interesting methods they use and the, the achieve, you know, the discoveries they make and then the um, technological achievements that come out of that. And I would look at that as that's the positive thing that energizes me and that's what I'm defending. So I, I think that that might be uh, a strategy just to keep firmly in mind what's the positive you're after. So you're not just fighting, um, you know, goblins, you're, uh, you're defending the castle, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> so now, but now we're back, back to, to fantasy, fantasy art. Fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think another thing is when you really experience um, feedback in the term in, in the form of a reward, like I do a lot of high school classroom talks of kids reading, for example, Ayn Rand's book, Anthem, or things like that. And um, just listening to the questions that they have about the story, um, the passages and the scenes that they find really meaningful to them and impactful. It's like when you get to see like, yeah, Ayn Rand's works actually resonate with people. And what we need to do is try to let them see the value in it so that they can become then more engaged or interested and they can explore more on their own and or explore it with the help, with our help uh, to the extent that that's something they're interested in and, and we can deliver. Uh, so there is a reward to the kind of, this kind of work. And it's, I guess it depends on what level you're participating. Uh, at some point, I don't know if this is Ayn Rand or someone else, but, um, someone was at, had this very pessimistic view about the culture and you know what's the point and and the response was you're too young to have that perspective <laughs> and it was sort of like you know you don't give up that fast um and also remember also what ayn rand says in um the book philosophy who needs it there's an essay at the end called what can one do and this always really i remember what i was doing when i read this passage because it really clicked it was you don't need to change like a majority's view to change the culture. Cultural change is made by minorities, intellectual minorities, you know, small groups of individuals who have a particular kind of view that's powerful. It's you don't need to change uh, 50 billion people's views. No, not at all. You need to present the best kinds of views in the most pers persuasive way you can to the best minds out there. And it's those minds who drive, who are actively engaged. Uh, can drive change. And then one last comment uh, for me is at least where I get my, let's say, fuel sometimes is just there's a lot of good, really good things going on in the world as well. Um, for instance, um, and, and you don't hear about them usually because it's usually what you hear about is the bad things. But one thing that, that that's on the news now is civilians launching themselves into space and that's that's a triumph of reason and and scientific progress and that opens the door for maybe in a few years any one of us can can go to space uh for at least a few minutes and like to me that's really encouraging because that's a triumph of reason and i i kind of like get fuel let's say for the fight from from that because i know that these objectivist ideas are actually make that possible and encourage, encourage that type of thing. Okay, so we are at time now. 
So um, I would like to thank everyone uh, for their super chat contributions. And um, I would like to share a couple of resources with you uh, from a few things that we have been talking about today. Uh, we have Ayn Rand's book, The Art of Fiction, like Erin uh, mentioned earlier, uh, it's a book it's, it's a course that um, Ayn Rand gave in her uh, living room many, many years ago that it's in book form. And then the other resource is the book Ayn Rand Answers, which compiles uh, some of Ayn Rand's uh, Q and A's uh, and some of the best answers that, that she had during Q and A's like after her talks. And we immediately after we end the broadcast, we are going to be on Clubhouse uh, discussing more questions that you may have about objectivism, uh, either new questions or follow up on questions that uh, we have already asked in this podcast today. And so how to follow us, we are on YouTube. If you're watching there, you please subscribe to our channel and click the bell to get notifications uh, to know when we're going live or when we have uploaded new content. And please also like and share and comment on this video so we can get a little bit more attention to our channel. And uh, likewise, if you're watching on Facebook, please like and share this, this video. And if you have questions or comments, uh, please email them to us at newideal at einrand.org. And we always read and often uh, reply uh, to your emails and we take your suggestions. And if you wanna send questions for our next Q and for our next Q&A episode, feel free to do so and you might get uh, your question answered live. So with that said, uh, thank you, Aaron and Mike for being here and for your answers. And uh, I'll see you in just a few minutes on Clubhouse. Thanks you Clubhouse. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.